Hey everyone, this is Caleb and welcome to the Learner's Corner. Today, I am so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner and I am honored to be joined by Shane Claiborne to talk with him about his brand new book, Rethinking Life, Embracing the Sacredness of Every Person. Now, if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner, I do want to tell you about a couple of things. First one is this, is that we believe that... Or we, Well, there's a few different things that we believe, but we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. And today we're going to engage in a lot of subject matter, a lot of topics that are not emotionally neutral. They can be emotionally charged. They involve a lot of, just a lot of different things. But what's important to keep in mind is that we also believe that we don't have to agree with someone completely in order to learn from them. That we could disagree from someone and continue to learn from them. And we believe that we can learn from anything and from everything, regardless of whether or not it's something serious or it is something trivial. And we do this because, at least I do this, because someone did that for me. You know, someone took what they learned and they decided to pass it on to me. And that's what we want to do here in the learner's corner is pass on what we have learned to the next generation. Now, if you enjoyed this episode or you've been listening for a while and you want to keep up with some of the many different things that are happening, please subscribe uh, to the podcast and subscribe to my newsletter where I give a bunch of different recommended resources as well for all of the things that I am learning from, from videos to music to books and just all sorts of other things as well and you can find the uh the link for my newsletter in the show notes and subscribe to that now let me tell you a little bit about shane and then we'll jump into the conversation shane claiborne is a prominent speaker activist and best-selling author shane worked with mother Teresa in calcutta and founded the simple way in philadelphia he heads up red letter christians a movement of folks who are committed to living as if Jesus meant the things he said. Shane is a champion for grace, which has led him to jail advocating for the homeless and and to places like Iraq and Afghanistan to stand against war. Now grace fuels his passion to end the death penalty and help stop gun violence. His books include Jesus for President, Red Letter Revolution, Common Prayer, Follow Me to Freedom, Jesus Jesus Bombs and Ice Cream, Becoming the Answer to Our Prayers, Executing Grace, his classic, The Irresistible Revolution, and his newest book, Rethinking Life. He's been featured in a number of films, including Another World is Possible and Ordinary Radicals. His books have been translated into more than a dozen languages, and he speaks over 100 times a year. His work has been featured in Esquire, Spin, Christianity Today, Time, and The Wall Street Journal, and has been on Fox News and... Uh, CNN and NPR and so many other places and has given academic lectures at Harvard, Princeton, Liberty, Duke, and Notre Dame and so many other places. And if you've been following Shane for a while, you know that uh, we're going to have a great conversation. And so without any further wait, here is our conversation.
Well, Shane, it is so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, and you know, you you have this book, uh, this brand new book called Rethinking Life, and I do want to get into that quite a bit. But before that, one of the places that I love starting some conversations with is I just love hearing what is capturing people's imagination and attention right now. And so I would just love to hear from you. What are some of the things that you're thinking about, some of the um, the problems or just the fun things that have just got you thinking right now? Well, I mean, goodness, 2023, here we are. We get, <laughs> There's a lot of uh, things, I guess, that uh, that means for us. We we celebrated 25 years uh, of community life here at the Simple Way on the north side of Philly. Uh, so that's been awesome. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I think this year really – I've, I've been thinking a lot about we, we started January with multiple executions in three different states. So we've been holding vigils around all of them. We had back to back mass shootings, you know, and um, the, the murder of Tyree Nichols. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, all that's on my mind, but it also just sort of uh, uh, confirms the reason that I wanted to release this new book that's really a comprehensive value for life and so it's been it's been a really holy project been a lot of fun um and you know of course we've been doing our work uh katie and i are both blacksmithing three days a week uh turning guns into garden tools and and as we say other life-giving things so katie's learning to make all kinds of jewelry and rings and whatnot out of gun metal and we're making our garden tools and uh crosses and stuff so i like writing with the dirt on my fingernails and the the smell of chopped caleb chopped up guns have a certain smell and i think it's a incense unto the lord so uh you know you mentioned uh, rethinking life and i would just love to hear where did this idea of thinking about um, life as as a whole thing, not just as abortion, which you write about, which it can sometimes, you know, sometimes that's kind of what the extent of this conversation can be. But it's so much more broad and vast than that. Do you remember whenever, like it first, whenever you first started thinking about that, that like life is bigger than just abortion, pro-life, pro-choice, all of that? Well, I've always loved that scripture that uh, we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, you know. So, I mean, in my own life, I've been um, expanding my passion for life and my advocacy for life uh, beyond beyond even issues, you know, to really have a uh, this, this sort of deep um, uh, love and appreciation for the sacredness of every person. Uh, and I start the book really with that affirmation that came from God originally, you know, that God breathed life into the dirt and called it good. And, mm-hmm. you know, that we're made in the image of God. And, uh, and, and then, you know, some of my work more recently in the, in the last few years has been around particular issues like uh, the death penalty. I wrote a book executing grace that is, um, some of it sharing my own journey from being a um, supporter of the death penalty to um, one who believes in alternatives to the death penalty. And, and I really, you know, found that it's hard to reconcile the gospel. Uh, <laughs> you 
that um uh th- th- this idea that you know blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy uh with the death penalty and yet you know 95% of the executions are happening in the bible belt uh and and the death penalty wouldn't stand a chance without the support of christians so i wrote that and then i wrote beating guns because i saw that uh the highest gun owning demographic in america are evangelical christians we we own guns at a, a higher rate than the general population. And, you know, when, when Jesus is saying, love your enemies, I really find it uh, difficult to simultaneously prepare to take them out, you know? <laughs> and I think that the cross and the gun kind of give us two different versions of power, you know? So that, that, that's been really important work. But then, you know, as I wrote this book, Rethinking Life, because I thought we needed something that ties us together. And the beautiful thing is, uh, when you look at the early church, they were not single issue people. They were mm-hmm. they had this this embrace of uh, of of the sacredness of life that meant speaking against violence in every manifestation it had. So they were passionately uh, against the death penalty. They spoke out against war and military combat. They spoke out against. Uh, they did speak about abortion. They wrote about abortion. They wrote about the gladiatorial games because they saw that as a real sort of glorification of violence in in their time and place. So uh, I'm inspired by them and they weren't perfect. And I'm really clear about that in the book. They yeah. have some of their own contradictions. And the church has had this competing pro-life and pro-death uh, sort of um, Christianity all through history. Uh, so that that's what I tried to be pretty honest about with the book. Yeah. Can you talk more about like how we got to a little bit of where we are today in terms of like, whenever you mention pro-life, people think of abortion and they don't think of guns. They don't think of the death penalty or just any or various things of that. So how do we get to this place of just thinking about pro-life as abortion? Well, uh, there's there's um, there is a really important history here that I go into a lot of depth in. On um, I, I, there's a whole section on abortion yeah. and and why it matters, but why it's also very complicated and all um, and and it's also troubling that this became the definitive issue for Christians. Um, I believe that we can hold some tension on this. That we're we're not all going to agree. For instance on when life begins. Um, In fact, I showed a number of polls in the book that were pretty evenly divided on people Mm -hmm. that believe that life begins at conception, others that believe that life begins at heartbeat, others that believe that life begins at viability when the the baby can survive outside of the womb. Um, And some folks believe uh, that that life begins at first breath. and, and so I don't think we're going to resolve that, but I think that what we can do um, is find some common ground. Um, for instance, uh, the number one cause for that's usually listed for uh, having an abortion is financial stability, um, not feeling like uh, the family has the economic stability to bring another child into the world and into their lives. And so if we really wanted to reduce the number of abortions, uh, it would seem that we, we could find some common ground championing things like 
affordable childcare and healthcare and um, things that would, would could really make it um, more of a, a possibility. And, and we need community. We need folks to to walk with us uh, in those times and so that we're not alone. And that's where I point to Mother Teresa and others as really great examples of folks that didn't just have bumper stickers or T-shirts, but they really lived out uh, a pro-life ethic um, that had teeth on it, you know, mm-hmm. um, and um but how we got here, like for this to be the kind of the main deal is that, uh, I mean, and you sort of think like Jesus doesn't mention this, even though it exists very prevalently in the time he lived. Uh, scripture really doesn't speak directly to it. There's certainly scriptures that, you know, have implications about the value of life and God knitting us before we were born and things like that. But like, as far as like, you know, really to the issue of the morality or ethics of, of abortion. Um, that That's, that's why I think this is, it's, it's, it's also one of the things that's evolved, whereas the death penalty, you know, hasn't really evolved much, maybe how we kill people has evolved. Mm-hmm. But I mean, in two, you know, 2000 years ago, there were things like exposure where children were left in the wilderness or in the woods to die. Um, and usually it was men that were, held the power and were deciding whether or not a child should be born. Uh, women had very little say uh, in that. And, um, and yet like, you know, today we'd be like, that's messed up. I mean, that's murder. You you know, like, like, so the way that we think about like um, the day after pill or, you know, medical procedures for abortion, even the knowledge that we have that a child uh, may already uh, uh, be stillborn in the womb and things like that. Like we have, we've just got, it's, it's a kind of a different set of questions that we're asking now. Um, not that we can't, you know, I mean, nuclear weapons didn't exist back then either. So I, you know, I'm kind of clear that like we can still take some cues from scripture and from Jesus about these things. But what was really troubling for me, um, is that the more I learned about this, the more that you see that our, um, the centrality of abortion um, really predates Roe versus Wade and goes back to really Brown versus Board of Education mm-hmm. and some of the racial justice struggles that shaped America. Um, and Randall Balmer and my friend Lisa Sharon Harper and others, we've done a lot of conversations around this. We've hosted two town halls that kind of helped shape this chapter on abortion. Uh, but what you saw was that this was not a unifying issue for Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, they tried to unify around it. And I'd track some of that history and it just wasn't something a lot of evangelicals considered this more of a Catholic thing. It just wasn't something that was a real passion for many uh, pro- conservative Christians in particular. Um, I quoted Jerry, uh, I mean, uh, uh, James Dobson, you know, in a foreword that he wrote where he's like, you know, people can disagree on this thing. So anyway, it um, how did it get to be so central is that after the the some of these racial justice laws the civil rights act and the brown versus board like we, we schools could no longer segregate and yet christian schools wanted to continue to live into the patterns of segregation uh, in fact some of these schools like bob jones which became really the iconic struggle of this um, they didn't even allow interracial dating until like after 2000, like 20 years ago, right? So these schools didn't allow interracial dating. They didn't have any African-American students, many of them. 
And so they were uh, th these laws um, really pushed them to uh, practice racial justice or face losing their tax exemption. And that's exactly what began to happen is in a real pinnacle lawsuit, uh, Bob Jones University uh, lost its tax exemption and um, and many evangelical Christians tried to rally around them. It became really clear that this was a losing battle, <laughs> you know, like like to to try, for Christians to try to build a movement um, based on racism and segregation, defending segregation. Um, and so uh, um, I really, you know, the more I read about this, the more you see that this isn't a stretch to say mm -hmm. that this became a very strategic move to rally around abortion. And many folks like Jerry Falwell, you know, really one of the most prominent folks in the religious right, didn't even speak about Roe versus Wade or abortion until years after it. So it was kind of one of those hindsight trying to, you know, retell our own history uh, where we began to erase the race, racial parts mm -hmm. of this and to centralize abortion and and uh, sexuality, same-sex marriage and things like that mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, I think that was probably one of the biggest shocking points of going through the book is what you were just mentioning about the origins of abortion, of that it was tied to uh, Brown versus Board of Education just because they seem so they seem like they would be so unrelated and yet history tells such a different story. And like that's another thing that you talk about in the book is the importance of paying attention to our history, not letting it be retold or prettied up and all of that stuff. Can you talk about um, some other, maybe another event of history, you know, around this conversation of life um, that just needs to be told and not beautied up or anything like that? Well, this is this is the part where um, truth telling is so important, and I talk about that throughout the book. You know, I mean, in 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 the Christian tradition, we we believe in confession. Uh, we believe that with repentance, we confess our sins. We you know share them with one another. That the truth sets us free, right? We but sometimes we just kind of act like that is only a personal thing. But I believe we can say the same thing about our national history. Uh, and even our ecclesial history, our church history, that some of our denominations started because they were on the wrong side of, of racial justice. Uh, they were defending segregation. Um, we Even in some of the battles that are happening right now around curriculum in schools and what we teach our children, um, uh, critical race theories kind of become this distraction from talking about things that, that really matter. You know, are we going to talk about the the real truth about Christopher Columbus and some of the terrible things that he did that were documented by his own friends, right? Uh, that became whistleblowers about the atrocities of Christopher Columbus. Um, uh, you know, the complexity of Abraham Lincoln. I talked about that building on my friend Sunshan Ra and Mark Charles's uh, work that, um, uh, and, and, you know, I mean, even now my wife and I are reading Ibram Kendi's book stamped from the beginning. And mm -hmm. you know, I mean, Thomas Jefferson, who, you know, helped pen some of the founding documents of America and this idea that these aspirations of America and yet owned black folks as property and even himself um, exploited one of his enslaved women at the age of 14 years old when he was like 30 years older than her. I mean, this would be illegal today, right? Yeah. And yet 
began to have children with her while she was still enslaved, you know? And so th this is like, I, what I want to be clear about in the book though, is that, that America can be a paradox. You know, our church history can be a paradox where, mm -hmm. um, uh, e even some of my, the, the, the our most well-known wise thinkers of Christianity, um, some of them had real holes in their theology and said some anti-Semitic things or said some really terrible things, you know, uh, and, and I think that's true, you know, with our national history, we certainly um, had some courageous people some that uh, crafted some great aspirations for America mm -hmm. that, um, that continue to be great aspirations. <laughs> yeah. you know? yeah. um, but, but, you know, like, I mean, some of this hits home because I grew up in East Tennessee and until just two years ago, we had a statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest, the one of the founders of the KKK, in the capital uh, of Tennessee. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how we remember history matters and we can't get our future right until we get our history right. Uh, and I mean, this is it's everywhere in America that there's these competing narratives and this mythology of America. And there's even a theology of manifest destiny and mm -hmm. uh, American exceptionalism um that that are out there today that really can um poison christianity and, and they also become a real threat to democracy when we have a mythology of america that isn't the the the, the reality you know i think that's that's what we see uh i mean even right here next to uh, where we're i'm recording this in philadelphia we have a school that was uh it, my wife uh, has worked there it's called sheridan elementary school and sheridan his most famous line was the only good Indian is a dead Indian. And we have a school named after, in fact, there's schools all over the country there. And so um, that name, that school just got reached, changed and the neighborhood got to decide who we want to remember. And it's uh, uh, this incredible uh, Latinx LGBT leader in Philadelphia that went to the school um, mm -hmm. Uh, Casares that it's now going to be named after. So, um, you know, I think that's important for Christians and also to see that uh, in the church, not only did we defend slavery using the Bible, but we actually had church employed enslaved people, mm -hmm. like literally people that were owned by the church and rented out or leased out for their labor. And that money often went to pay the pastor's salary. Um so, um, you know, we can't rewind the history book, but we can certainly ask the question of what 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 does what does it look like to repair some of the harm that was done? And and I believe that begins by telling the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't end there, but that's a good start. Um, and that you know the kind of refrain of this book, Caleb, all through it is we're asking the question: What does love require of us? Yeah. And that's the question on abortion. It's the question I raise around this history, you know, um, around immigration, around the death penalty. What does love require of us? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, going back to what you said about the churches owning slaves. Again, there's so many things throughout this book of just pieces of history, different things that it's just it's shocking to hear about because you can't, at least for me. It's just things that you wouldn't expect to happen, especially whenever you compare it to our to our Christian faith as well. It's such the opposite of it. And like I would just love to hear 
Like, what do you think it is that, like, makes us afraid to tell the truth about history, about um, what actually happened, the the evil of people, if you want to call it that, or um, the imperfectness, whatever you want to call it. Why do you think we are so afraid to be honest or to be a truth teller, as you talk about in the book? I th- I, we like the mythology. I think I think we like the mythology more than we like the truth. Sometimes mm. we we like our idea of um, America rather than the America that we really have, which is really broken. And mm-hmm. and some of it's because this is, uh, as Dr. King said, an untreated, festering wound. You know that we just kind of keep bandaging up, but we're not we're not. Uh, really doing the work to to heal it and treat it um, and you can't just kind of be putting a, a bandage over over a, an open wound um, the other thing is I think that um, we know with truth comes responsibility mm-hmm. um, you know uh, if you find out that uh, you you got a car that was stolen um then you probably want to do something about that, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, much, much less if you got a car that someone was killed, uh, getting stolen and then sold to you, you know, yeah. it's not that you did, you you didn't necessarily yeah. participate in that, but you do kind of go, Ooh, that that's messed up. I want to, I want to make sure that I try to repair the harm that was done, you know? And, um, so I think with some of this, there comes responsibility. Um, and, uh, um, and and my friends that wrote reparations, Duke Kwan and uh, Gregory Thompson, there's so many wonderful folks that I'm building on their work, but yeah. they they kind of mentioned this shame and this fragility is one of the curses, uh, especially of white folks that have been the power brokers that have been uh, many times the ones that have created some of um, the historic harm. Um that we would rather not face that history. But the curse of that is we have this constant um, uh, fear and this fragility and this um, we're, we're, we're kind of, I think we see that express itself in a lot of different ways today, you know, um, and this nostalgia, right. That we, we want to make America great again. We want to go back rather than going forward or what we saw on January 6th was really a, a, clinging for power you know there's a lot of like we want um we don't want these people to replace us so there's a reaction to the changing demographics of america of course on the back of the first um black president the black lives matter movement you know now our first woman of color as vice president so like all of that i think has created this sense of um a struggle for power and yet it's as if we never heard the words of Jesus, right? Uh, like, yeah. what is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Or, you know, the temptation to power came from the devil and Jesus rejected it and shows us a completely different orientation to worldly power. So I think, you know, it, it's it's a really dangerous thing when, when our Christianity, um, or at least one version of it, gets obsessed with um, the clutch for, for worldly power. Mm-hmm. I'd love to ask, go back... And you mentioned, you know, as we learn about history, at some point, we're going to learn that our heroes are not the people that we thought that they were, that they're not perfect. You know, they've made, they failed in in many cases. And um, talk to me about 
what helps you work through situations like that? Because depending on the person and depending on the connection, that is such an emotional experience to think that, you know, your hero or whoever that is, um, failed miserably or, or, um, sinned in such, in such a horrifying way. Ooh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, so I, uh, this is why we don't put anything, put our hope in anything short of Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that the old hymn, I love that old hymn. You know, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. All other ground is sinking sand. And there are certainly people whose lives point us to Jesus at their best, right? Um, and um, and yet I think this is one of the places, I, I'm pretty hard on Martin Luther in different places in the book, but one of the things he got right is that you know, inside of each one of us, in our soul, there's a battle uh, between a sinner and a saint. You know, um, where I was telling someone the other day, a, a villain and a superhero. You know, that, <laughs> yeah. that are at, oh, yeah. that are that are at war within inside of us, and we get to choose who we're going to be. Um, and I think Scripture is really clear too that we all see through a glass dimly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we we have sort of limitations to our peripheral vision. Some of them are based on. Uh, you know, where you sit determines what you see, you know, so our social location, things like that. Um, and that's why we need diverse voices. It's why we need to see scripture from the bottom up, not just the top down, you know, and and um, uh, but uh, it's helpful to realize that um, that, that we're all equally broken and we're equally capable of, of love and, and beauty and power and you know in the best form of it you know so i think that's where uh frederick beekner's right that uh, you know what a saint really is is when god drops an ink a handkerchief from heaven uh and leaves the scent of heaven on earth and that's you know what a a a saint is is someone that's leaving off the fragrance of heaven in the world uh it's a beautiful way of saying it and and um but, you know, that, that we're, th- these are also imperfect people, even mm-hmm. the ones that I admire so much. Martin Luther King was not perfect, had some serious, you know, sh- things that he was working through in his life. Um, uh, Rich Mullins, who was a, uh, became a dear friend of mine, a great singer and songwriter. He was very honest about his <laughs> depression, his his struggles, his, his um, loneliness. Um, and his songs are born out of that beautiful songs, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, it kind of reminds me, Caleb, of the the uh, Irish theologian Bono, um, <laughs> the, the uh, singer of U2, when he said, "The fact that the Bible is full of messed up people, uh, you know, liars, cowards, uh, hustlers, murderers," uh, Bono said, "It used to disturb me." But now I find it a great source of comfort. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's that's true. And yeah, you know, I think that that part of what the world's looking for is not Christians who are perfect, but Christians that are honest. Mm-hmm. And part of that's being honest about ourselves, our own doubts and imperfections. But it's also being honest about the, the struggles of our heroes. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't love Mother Teresa any less when they found out that she had doubts that she went years and years um, really not feeling the presence of God. Um, and, and, and even Jesus, you know, I, I point to people all the time that when, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So if God can feel that, 
then, yeah. then certainly it's all right if we do, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think what's dangerous is we when we pretend that we're perfect, um, mm -hmm. rather than you know try to be be honest about the places that we're still uh, uh, still being redeemed. Yeah, yeah. You know, the other thought that came to mind as you were talking about that, and we we had talked about it before that is not only honest about ourselves, but honest about the situation that we're into or honest about the past and like how sometimes that could probably be equally, I don't know about equally, but it could be very dangerous too, if we're not yeah. honest about those things. Mm. Yeah. And you know, when you look at these really haunting eras of history, um, like the crusades, which I go into great detail and, you know, um, you know, if there's young people listening, I'll try to, to, you know, not make it too grotesque. But, you know, we Christians cut the heads off of Muslim people and fired them out of cannons. These are people yeah. that claim to follow Jesus, you know. Yeah. Um, certainly Hitler, you know, had the Bible in his hand. And I kind of track that, you know, he builds on already existing seeds of anti-Semitism. Uh, and even theological seeds that were planted for hundreds of years that bore the the terrible fruit of the Holocaust. Um, and um, so that, you know, I, I think it's important that there can be competing uh, versions of Christianity or as, you know, Christopher Columbus, right hand man, De Las Casas said, uh, people pretending to be Christians. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, that, uh, but, you know, I think it's helpful to realize that because we see it even now. Yeah. You know, we see it even now. People that are defending ungodly, unchristlike things, um, trying to camouflage their hatred with Christianity. And yet that's why we keep going back to, if it doesn't look like love, yeah. if it doesn't sound like love, if it doesn't look like Jesus, if it's not about welcoming the immigrant, if it's not about caring for the least of these and uh, making sure that those without housing and without health care are, are um, cared for, then, then we shouldn't say that this is any version of Christianity if it doesn't look like Christ. Mm, yeah. You know, the other thing that as it relates to history that you talk about is um, is our response to history. And one example that you talk about is Germany's response after World War II and after the Nazis came. Can you kind of tease out what they looked like and how their response looks different than, you know, to the American response of our own uh, terrible history? Right. And you go all over Germany and there are memorials to make sure that we do not forget and uh, uh, like the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And it actually became a crime to deny the Holocaust, right? Like um, this is such a tragic history that um, uh, we don't want to repeat it. And we want to make sure that we that the somberness and uh, is, is able to uh, be memorialized. So you have, you know, Holocaust memorials, you have the um, uh, the concentration camps and places where these horrors took place that are preserved so that we, in a way that we remember it, right? Mm -hmm. But the way that you do that, the way that you remember um, uh, the atrocities of history is by letting the suffering speak, mm -hmm. by remembering the victims. And yet, in much of American history, we have memorialized the people who were on the wrong side of history. We've mm -hmm. set up statues to confederate 
soldiers and erased the courageous voices of folks that were fighting for racial equality and fighting against segregation and and uh, um, uh, uh, you know for the abolition of slavery and so um, uh, you know you don't remember 9/11 by setting up a bunch of statues to the hijackers and the terrorists mm -hmm. you remember it by remembering the lives lost that's how you 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 preserve that and and so I think we've got a lot of work to do and um, one of the places I point to is the Equal Justice Initiative, my friend Brian Stevenson's wonderful work to try to tell the truth of that history, of our history around lynching, um, but also the history of of Black courage uh, and resilience and art and uh, uh, just the, the innovation and the beauty of, of the contributions of Africans uh, in our country and natives and, and, and folks of other cultures that often just get memorialized as being victims mm -hmm. rather than as building the best of this country. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's all part of the truth telling of history. Um, and, and yeah, a lot of countries have done better with that. And some of them have, have had to go back like apartheid mm -hmm. in South Africa. Uh, the truth and reconciliation commissions came out of that. So they wanted to go make sure we tell the truth, but then let's also move towards reconciliation. Uh, mm -hmm. But you can't move to reconciliation if you don't have truth. You know, if we're not able to really face some of the the, the horrific things that, that we did historically. Mm, yeah. And I think what you mentioned, you know, just a minute ago was such a, it, it's going to be one of my biggest takeaways probably from, this conversation is, you know, whenever you're retelling history, you have to admit some of the good that happened, the brave acts of courage that that you, that you just mentioned. And at least I I hadn't really thought about that before. Like typically, you think of like, yeah, I'm just going to remove the the parts that don't make me or don't make us look good, and not the parts that make other people look good. Hmm. Yeah, and isn't truth anywhere? It it comes from God, you know, yeah. and and. You know, as Rich Mullins used to say, talking about the story of Balaam and his donkey, you know, God speaks to yeah. Balaam through his donkey. He said, God spoke to Balaam through his ass and God's been speaking through asses ever since. Um, so, you know, uh, don't be surprised if God can speak through someone you think they can't speak through and don't be too impressed if God uses you. You know, yeah. so, I mean, there's a lot of truth in that. Right. Yeah. So, you know, when I quote Martin Luther. I'm fully aware that he got some things terribly wrong. I think toxically deadly wrong, Martin mm -hmm. Luther. Um, I, you know, some of this I stumbled upon. I've quoted the early Christians. I've written books about how much wisdom they had. Came back and saw some, like, some really, um, at, at, at best, imperfect. And at worst, some of these were um, really contrary to Christ and to love. Um, some of the early Christians that began to have this idea that the Jews killed Jesus rather than our sins contributed to Jesus's mm -hmm. death, right? Uh, but it was the Jews and they were the God killers. And, you know, and so that some of this begins to then just continue to spiral into, uh, you know, the, 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 this hateful theology that can end up being really violent. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's so important to to realize that even in, in our culture, you know, with so much canceling, you know, or going back mm -hmm. 20 years to find something that somebody did or said, um, yes, those things should be exposed and they should be held in the context of of the rest of someone's life. Right. Like uh, 
that we're we're all this work in progress. And so I'm, I think most of us, if we met ourselves 20 years ago, we would probably have some strong things to say to ourselves. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. you know, or, or even someone that I disagree with right now. Yeah. Someone can simultaneously speak truth and lies and someone. Mm. But I think really what I what I want us to be moving towards together is to Jesus and and moving towards truth telling, you know, mm. um, and trying to find the contradictions in ourselves. Yeah. Right. My 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 friend and mentor, Tony Campoli, he always says we need to work so that our contradictions and hypocrisies are less today than they were yesterday. <laughs> mm, yeah. And he says, and that should give us grace, right? Yeah. When people say to Tony, the church is full of hypocrites. Tony Campolo says, no, it's not. We've always got room for more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, another thing that I wanted to ask about is, you know, in your work, you know, from this book, you know, talking about life and abortion. And then you've also talked about guns and the death penalty. Some of those things can be very complex issues. Like it's not always easy to go, yep, you know, there aren't easy answers in those. What has helped you engage in like really complex conversations like that to where it's not just one factor. There's like a dozen factors and they they all rank differently to different people. What's helped you engage in those types of conversations? What's helped me is moving away from ideologies alone, from just mm -hmm. strong opinions. Cause I found that me included, we are all really good at having opinions about people that we don't know. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, uh, or maybe we do know them, but we haven't created a conversation with them, but just about them. Um, and, you know, even in this book, I, I mean, as we hosted town halls on abortion, when this becomes personal, the whole conversation changes. You know, mm -hmm. um, I found out as I was doing this project that my mom had had an abortion and I didn't know. And um and she, you know, had tears rolling down her face and it was so freeing for her to be able to talk about that, you know, with me um, and um, and others, uh, you know, other dear friends. I mean, my wife tells her story in the book. We also had a town hall where a woman late in her pregnancy um, had uh, twins and one of them uh, began to pass away uh, in, in her womb and, and uh, she was faced with this a horrific decision where her life and the other uh, twin of the, the two, their life was at stake. And so I don't, I mean, these are, these are rough. I mean, and so when people are just talking about late term abortion in a dishonest way, just as if a woman eight months into pregnancy just decides, I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to have this kid. Like I'm yet to ever meet a person that that's what happened to them. Right. Mm -hmm. And in so many of these issues, Proximity makes all the difference. I mean, mm -hmm. gun violence became a passion of mine because I saw too many people killed in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, the death penalty. I mean, I write several stories about as I visited people on death row, both people who I believe are innocent. Actually, I know we're innocent. And now they're out of jail, but also people that I visited that were guilty. And I saw what what God has done in their life and what their own courage has done to try to heal the wounds that they were responsible for. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 these issues become 
more than just opinions. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that, that, that's why, you know, love needs to be so central uh, to yeah. say, say, what, what, what does that look like? But yeah, the proximity makes a really big difference. That's why in, in the last part of the book, I talk about the importance of proximity and of, of moving, you know, beyond the kind of just, uh, the cheap activism of bumper stickers and t-shirts and really, uh, move deeper into our relationships. Mm. Man, what, you know, at some point in these conversations, we're all misunderstood for it. Somebody thinks that we're communicating something different than what we want, or they're just very, they're just mean to us because they do not agree with, yeah. with the, with the view that we have in those moments. What, what helps you whenever you you're being misunderstood or you feel like someone else is demonizing you or misrepresenting what you're talking about? Well, social media has made this a very complicated <laughs> uh, world. And, um, and I'm very concerned about um, how layers of separation virtually and, you know, um, kind of create um, a distance that we can attack people and say things that we really wouldn't if we were together. And that's why these studies that I, I cite some of them in the book, uh, More in Common, where it talks about if you know someone that you respect and you love that has a different political party affiliation or just different opinions than you, if you know them, it really changes um, how you interact and um, and how you demonize other people. And one of the really stunning statistics uh, that uh, a recent study showed is that a, a, a very concerning number of people on the left not only believe people on the right are wrong, but they think that they are evil. Mm -hmm. And it's almost exactly mirrored by people on the right who believe that, you know, progressive or liberal folks are not just wrong, but they're evil. And both of these groups think that the world would be better off without them, the other, the other group. You know, like, when we're that divided as a country that we're, it's not just about, I, I I see this really different than you. And I, and even like, I'm passionate about this, but like when I, when it gets to the point where you go, like, you're not just wrong, you're evil. And I wish you weren't, you, you weren't even here. You know, like that's a really, it's a dangerous place for our hearts. It's a dangerous place for our country. Um, and so, you know, I, I would hope, especially those of us who claim to love and follow Jesus um, would, would, would do better, you know, would have better conversations, would have uh, be better listeners um, mm -hmm. and, and would ask good questions. You know, I think, I think uh, I don't know too many people that change their mind because they lost an argument, mm -hmm. but I know a lot of people that their heart shifted and their head followed that, you know, they, mm -hmm. they, they met someone who is an immigrant whose story just broke their heart and it caused them to rethink their rhetoric or their policies on, you know, and, and, and I think that's the kind of thing that we need to keep cracking at or, or the kind of hardened hearts. Um, but self-righteousness is toxic and it's not partisan. Uh, they're self-righteous liberals or self-righteous uh, uh, conservatives, uh, but it is always poisonous. And that's why Jesus called it, he said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, right? That, that self-righteous um, uh, 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 
that self-righteousness is really, really hurtful, not just to other people, but it corrupts our own hearts. Mm-hmm. Well, I got one other thing I want to ask you about yeah, before man. that. Is there anything just top of mind, you know, regarding anything that we've talked about, anything in the book that stands out that you want to make sure that we talk about or cover? Oh, I think we're doing good, man. Okay. We're doing good. I'm I'm optimistic, or not optimistic, I'm hopeful. You know, I'm hopeful that we can learn from some of the best of this history and, and from some of the worst, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's things that I learned, you know, like, like I talk about Constantine. I wrote a book, Jesus for president, where we can, you know, we critique the move from the, the, you know, the Christians being persecuted minority to be the persecuting majority, you know, where mm-hmm. we exchange the, the cross for the sword. But man, I mean, this thing gets even more complicated with Constantine as he held the council of Nicaea. And then like, just right after that, the brother killed his own family, you know, <laughs> You're like, yeah. well, and now he's revered as a saint in some traditions. So yeah, yeah I think we got to, we got to get into it, man. We got to get into it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's pretty closely tied to what I wanted to ask you about. I'd love to ask, you know, just as it pertains to this and, and the church engaging in this conversation, you know, what has you maybe, maybe most worried or concerned? And then what has you most hopeful about this? Uh, I, I, the one thing that's, you know, I've been concerned about for a while is the way that a, um, someone with a very loud megaphone can really distort the Christian faith. Um, and it's been happening. It's happened in a lot of different ways. I mean, we really, um, confronted, uh, a, 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 man in florida uh, who was uh, and he was called a pastor but he burnt the quran you know and i mean it it ignited violence and concern all over the world like one person burning the quran you know um and now we have some people that are um militant uh like the folks that took over the capitol on january 6th that have jesus signs with the Confederate flag and with Trump signs and with guns and they're ready to, you know, declare a violent, you know, overthrow. And, and, uh, but Jesus is more the mascot, you know, as my friend Amanda Tyler says, it, it doesn't look like Jesus. And so where I'm, I'm hopeful is that Christian Christianity is bigger than the embarrassing things that some Christians are doing and, um, and even, you know, I look at the historic black church in America and how there were these competing narratives, as my friend Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove talks about the, the slaveholder religion and the enslaved people's religion. You know, that these were uh, the, the good news that's good news to the poor and oppressed still broke through. Um, and so I think we've got to get outside of the um, the the most toxic versions of uh, white evangelicalism and, and lean into those spaces, uh, that might even have been more historically marginalized, but have a more robust faith that looks like Jesus, that sounds like liberation, that recognizes the sacredness of every person. Um, and, um, so it's, it's very limiting if we allow the loudest voices to sort of colonize the narrative. So at Red Letter Christians, you know, we of course get our name from the gospels that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we we often say that, we, you know, we're going to change the narrative by changing the narrators. 
and by amplifying those voices that are holding together Jesus and justice, love of God and love of neighbor, you know. Uh, so um, the landscape of Christianity is big. And and that's why I think, you know, deconstruction might be a place that people need to be for a while. But we're renovating abandoned houses in Philly. And you need some discernment on that. You know, there's like there's abandoned houses that need to be torn to the ground. And there's others that just uh, they're actually really solid. They just need a little bit of uh sheetrock and uh, you know new new plumbing and electric so i think we you know um the church is kind of like that it needs restoration and there's parts of it that need to be pruned you know uh they don't but there's other parts you know that we we really want to see flourish so um yeah it's kind of always been like that though you know we've we've had we've we've had uh we're we're not alone and that's i think as you kind of look at history and yet Jesus, Jesus yeah. keeps, uh, keeps surviving, you know, yeah. the, the crazy things we do in his name. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and I think even just to bring it full circle, like that's why it's important to tell the truth, just as you said about history, because you learn that this has happened all throughout history, the good and the bad, and Jesus is still faithful. Yeah. Hallelujah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's not going away, you know, I mean, even in recent years, yeah. We've heard people at the highest levels of our government, I won't name names on your show, Caleb, but, you know, <laughs> former presidents that yeah. have, you know, referred to people as animals. And when you start calling human beings made in the image of God, cockroaches or animals um, or worse, you know, entire countries that are assholes or whatever it is, like when we when we desecrate the sacredness of, of lives that are made, you know, in God's image, then the, the limits to the damage that we can do, um, there are no limits. And that's what history Mm -hmm. teaches us. You can just start destroying people once you've desecrated their lives and devalued their, uh, the image of God in them. And that's why, you know, as we, think about the black lives matter movement and um we might even say if you're in israel and palestine it's it's saying palestinian lives matter you know if you've des- you know if you've if you've demonized israeli lives saying jewish lives matter you know like whoever it is that is is being dehumanized like to affirm their dignity is so important and um there's that beautiful scripture i'll close with caleb but in, yeah. in the book i talk about you know and Corinthians, it talks about how we're all one body with many parts, but then it says so powerfully that the parts of the body that have been dishonored are now given special honor. And my friend Alexia Salvatierra calls it God's affirmative action. (laughs) God's affirming what we have denied. Mm -hmm. And when we say that some people are two thirds human or that natives are savages or that, uh, uh, you know, in Dred Scott, that black folks don't have any rights that white people need to acknowledge. Like over and over, we've um, denied the sacredness of certain lives. So now to give special honor to the lives that have been dishonored is holy work, holy work. Yeah. Well, Shane, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you and get your book, Rethinking Life. Where is the best place for people to go to do those things? Yeah, well, I'm on socials. I do my best to, uh, you know, keep up on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. It's just my name. And folks can check out Red Letter Christians. We've got a whole beautiful cloud of witnesses there. As far as getting the book, you can get it pretty much anywhere books are sold. But if you get it from 
the simple way um, at thesimpleway.org. Uh, it supports our work here in the neighborhood on the north side of Philly. Awesome. Well, Shane, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And just thanks for the very wonderful conversation. And just for thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Yeah, bro. Let's do it again. Appreciate you, bro. So coming out of that conversation with Shane, I think one of the two two things that have got me thinking, one of them is just a, a reaffirmation of of something that I, he might have been the person who first introduced me to this topic, but just thinking about life in a more holistic way of not only thinking about it in terms of abortion or pro-life or pro-choice, but are we pro making pro-life about more than being for or against abortion of it literally being for life and for and for living and being able to identify the the areas where we see that things in society or things that are said are not being pro-life pro-living and then so thinking about that and i think the other thing is the tension of which he mentioned of people who have done dishonorable things in the past whether that be acts of uh, discrimination or violence or anti-semitism or whatever that might be if realizing that of just holding that tension between that we can learn from this person but we it's not good for us to idolize the people and learning how to handle that balance. And I don't know if I have a good answer for it of how to handle that tension right now, but it's something that has definitely got me thinking. And so, yeah, if you want to, you know, keep up with me and all the things that I'm, I'm thinking about and some of the things I'm learning about, please subscribe to my newsletter, which you can find in the show notes and i think that's all that i have for today i do want to say thank you to shane for being on the podcast today thank you uh to sam massey for creating the music for this podcast and thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode my name is Kayla mason and until next time keep learning and keep growing